You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you. And so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living here on Radio Maria Canada. Today we'll be sharing a few reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen on the topic of suffering. And so now Archbishop Sheen gave a program addressed in the 1950s on his Life is Worth Living television series, and we'll share that with you in a few moments. Uh, but during the second half of our program, we will continue our catechism lessons with uh, Archbishop Sheen, and he'll be giving us lesson number 14, uh, talking about the creed, where we talk about uh, Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection. And so, again, we're going to have a great time together learning our faith. And so let's begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So may I present to you now the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, speaking on the topic of suffering. Friends, you may recall a few years ago there was a story going around to this effect about a little girl who was told by her parents to pray because there had been so many misfortunes and sufferings in the family. And so the little child prayed and said, Dear Lord, my brother has the mumps. My sister fell off the bicycle and broke her leg. And my older brother has pneumonia. And daddy lost his job. So, dear God, please take care of yourself, because if anything happens to you, we'll all be in the soup. (laughs) We have received so many letters from people who have had greater sufferings than this little girl, we decided tonight to talk on the subject of suffering. First, on some of the paradoxes of suffering. Secondly, on two ways of meeting pain or suffering. And uh, finally, how to accept it. First of all, the paradoxes. Have you noticed that in our contemporary civilization, there happens to be a coincidence first of all, of great material prosperity and at the same time a tremendous amount of inner 
and mental discontent. First of all, we do have material prosperity. The per capita income of the United States is around $1,750. China's $26 a year. But along with that, there's an inner unhappiness. 51% of the hospital beds of the United States are occupied by mental patients. We ought not to have this tragic sense of life with so much prosperity. Why is it? Certainly it's not because we're prosperous. It can only be because, to a great extent, we are assuming that all we need to be happy is some external prosperity. In other words, we've made our philosophy a philosophy of having, rather than a philosophy of being. And the reason there is this inner discontent and unhappiness is because man is trying to put the infinite into the finite. This is the mathematical symbol of the infinite. This is the symbol of the finite. And what we're trying to do with our soul and our heart that was made for the infinite of life and truth and love, we are attempting to pull this infinite down into our finite structure with all of its material environment. It simply cannot be done. Rather, what we should do to be happy in the midst of prosperity is to take this finite nature of ours and plunge it into the infinite. As Hans Werfel said, this line of the human and the finite and reason must be crossed somehow or other. And Werfel continuing says, it is crossed above by faith and it is crossed below by insanity. That is the, is the first peculiar paradox of modern suffering. Now, there's a, a second, and the second has to do with pleasure. Have you ever noticed that we have a greater capacity for pain than we have for pleasure? For example, we, uh, our pleasures are not always very enduring. For one thing, a pleasure can reach a point where it will give us pain. It can turn into pain. For example, tickling. And then also, have you noticed, too, that pleasure sometimes will go up like this, and then there will be a sudden drop in them. And finally, in order to get identically the same reaction, one must very much increase the stimulus. So we're not getting here, out of this life, all of the pleasure and happiness that we possibly can. But pain, pain, it seems, could very quickly reach an end. And yet somehow it reaches that end that we anticipated, and we still bear it. We go to a dentist, and we feel that if he drills five minutes more, and go six feet deeper, I just can't stand it. <laughs> we stand it all right. And then he continues to bore, and we know he's going to hit oil. We stand it. <laughs> there are many people listening to me in sick beds of suffering who felt that they should have exhausted themselves months or years ago 
but they still can go on suffering. Now, why is this? Why do we have a greater capacity for pain than for pleasure? I think because it was intended by God that all pain here should end. That's why we seem to exhaust it. Because there will come another world when tears will be wiped away. And the sorrows of this life are not worthy to be compared with the joys that are to come. But with pleasure. Pleasure and joy, particularly, is not intended to be exhausted here. That comes elsewhere. That happiness is being saved for heaven. And if people understood that, perhaps they would be, well, less mentally disturbed, less inclined to go to the psychiatrist, because they've all got skeletons in their closet, and they make no bones about it. <laughs> that brings us to the double reaction to pain. There are two possible ways of enduring pain. As Stevenson expressed two ways of looking out of prison bars. Two men looked out through prison bars. The one saw mud, the other stars. And in the midst of agony and pain and suffering, one reaction of pain can be rebellion. The other reaction of pain can be resignation. Why this difference? The difference is due to the fact that this person sees no purpose in pain. And when there's no purpose seen, no final destiny, when pain is just as opaque as a curtain, then it's rather natural for the soul to revolt against it. When one can see a purpose in it, see it as a means, see it transparent, and as opening onto something else, then there can be resignation. These two attitudes toward pain were perfectly exemplified on the day when two thieves and revolutionists were put to death. They were crucified on either side of our divine Lord. Both of these revolutionists suffered exactly the same torture. They had identically the same background. When they each felt the impress of the nail in their hands, when the crucifixion began, they blasphemed. And then when finally they had mounted their crosses, they heard the one on the central cross speak. It was a peculiar word he spoke. Generally when men die, They either protest their innocence or if they have any spark of justice in their souls, they ask for forgiveness. But here, for the first time in the history of the world, the Son of God on the central cross was saying, Father, forgive them. They know not 
what they do. When the thief on the left heard this cry, he suspected that there on that central cross was power. And so he asked the one on the central cross if he had power to take him down. That to him was the sign of omnipotence to stop that pain and that suffering. Why should he be there? Why did he ask to be taken down? Not to be made better, but simply to go on with the dirty business of thieving. But the other thief, when he heard that prayer from the central cross, he immediately began to see a relationship between his sufferings and his guilt. His background as a blackguard, a revolutionist, and a racketeer. And some sparks from the central cross ignited some inflammable material in his soul. And in the belfry of his conscience, the bell began to toll. spoke to the brother thief and he said fear ye not fear ye not we suffer the just reward of our crimes but this man has done no wrong then He uttered a prayer. And turning to the divine Savior on the central cross, he said, Remember me. Remember me. When thou shalt come into thy kingdom. Kingdom? One who apparently was a fellow criminal. The thief looked at the crown of thorns and saw there a royal diadem. The nail was to him a scepter of power and authority. His crucifixion was his installation, his blood was as royal purple. And he asked only to be remembered. And there came back this day. Thou shalt be with me in paradise. Now, it was the foundation of democracy, the worth of a single soul. Thou shalt be with me. I always wonder why he said in paradise. Be with him is paradise. And the thief died a thief. For he stole paradise. 
and paradise can be stolen again. And from these two reactions, we see the one that is to be chosen, the two ways in which pain can be used. Pain can be used, first of all, in expiation. That is to say, for our own failings and sins. Secondly, in reparation for the failings and the sins of others. First of all, expiation. I can remember uh, when I was a boy about eight or nine years of age, my brother and I were playing a ball in the backyard, and we threw a ball accidentally through the neighbor's window. And mother heard it, and she called us in. And uh, she sent us to our piggy bank. And she made us take the money out and go over to the man next door and give him the money for the broken window. And also ask him to forgive us. Now, why shouldn't we just ask to be forgiven? Well, because we broke a window. People think that when they do anything wrong, all they have to do is be forgiven. Oh, no, we disturb an equilibrium, an order. That order often has to be redressed. For example, if I stole your watch, if I stole the watch of one of these operators here, if I could get close enough to this cameraman and steal his watch here, uh, and then I would say to him, I'm awfully sorry, I stole your watch, will you forgive me? He says, yes, I forgive you. But he says, give me back my watch. <laughs> well, so it is if we have sins. And who in the name of God has them? Well, we can ask the good Lord to take the pains that come to us in expiation and redress and atonement for all the wrong that we have done. We put down our foot, for example, three times in illegitimate sinful pleasure and to get back there to do right again, we've got to put our foot down in pain and be like little doggies with our tail in back of us. And then when we reach this point, then only can we begin to do good. That's one way pain can be used. And the second way in which it can be used is in reparation. And here we offer it up for others, not just for ourselves. How often, for example, in the physical order, doctors will graft skin. If we burn our face, from our back to our face, to restore our pristine elegance. If a person is suffering from anemia, doctors will transfuse blood from the healthy member of society to the anemic person in order to cure the person of that condition. Now, if it's possible to transfuse blood, don't you think it's possible to transfuse prayer? If it's possible to graft skin... Not possible also to graft some reparation, some sacrifices. We live in a world in which we do not grow the sheep, for example, though we wear woolen clothes. Others help us. So it's possible to take our sorrows, our disappointments, and the jealousies and the hatreds of others and turn them all back again as the thief of the right did, in order that someone else might be saved. 
That's reparation. We should not complain about it. I just happened to think today that maybe you might be interested. In this little booklet that I did, I never intended to be telling you about it. We did it for the mission. The title of it is, What Did I Do to Deserve This? It's only about, see, six pages, a tiny little thing. If you want it, we'll send it to you, to you free. Just write to me at 109 East 38th Street, New York 16. The same house where I climbed four flights of stairs for meals this Lent as I did last. I figure out... What did I do to deserve that? I figure that I climb about 18 to 20 flights of stairs a day, and then have to climb back. My angel got so tired the other day, he stopped after the 14th time. Anybody want to sell me a new house? An office? Gee, let me know, will you? <laughs> it has to be in New York. Now to come back to the point, why should we offer up our sufferings in expiation or reparation? Simply because we love. Love will not Kill pain. But love will diminish it. A mother sits up with her sick child all night long. For her, it's not agony, it's love. There are not any lovers in the world, I mean real, true lovers, who would not willingly take on the pains and the agony of others they possibly could. Love in, in the face of sorrow does not seek isolation. It wants to take on that pain as its own. And why should not love in the face of sin and evil want to do the same thing? The great tragedy of our world is that most people have no one to love. Since there's no one to love, and they never think of the love of God, their life is tragic indeed. Oh, the tragedy of the world is not so much. Suffering is what we miss when we do suffer. Think of all of the sick and hospitals with aching brows who might in some way sanctify that pain by correlating it to a crown of thorns. And all the wounded hands that might sacramentalize that agony that they but correlated in some way with hands that were riven with steel to all the aching hearts of the world, with all of their worries and anxieties and fears. They would only not allow that pain to go to waste, but offer it up in union with someone whose heart was open to take in all the hearts of the world. Why should we frighten that love? I slipped his fingers... I escaped his feet. I ran in heaps. For him I feared to meet. One day I passed him. Fettered on a tree. He turned his head. And looked. 
and beckoned me. Neither by speed nor strength could he prevail. Each hand and foot was pinioned by a nail. He could not run nor clasp me if he tried. But with his eyes, he bade me reach his side. For pity's sake, thought I, I'll set you free. Take this cross, said he, and follow me. This yoke is easy. This burden light. Not hard nor grievous. If you wear it tight. And so did I follow him who could not move. An uncaught captive in the hand of love. By and God love you. Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company, who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at 1-866-357-4336 or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic family videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com you will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today, 1-866-357-4336. Again, one 357 4336 and on the web www.bishopsheen.com and on behalf of Bishop Sheen God love you You are listening to Radio Maria Canada We now continue with the program Your Life is Worth Living hosted by Al Smith Hello Radio Maria family and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living I hope you enjoyed this reflection on the topic of suffering. It's hard to believe that that broadcast was aired over 65 years ago, and it's still relevant today. And this is the beauty of truth. Uh, It is the same uh, today, yesterday, and tomorrow. The truth is the truth is the truth, as many of us know that famous saying uh, from one of our prime ministers of Canada. Uh, But it is, again, something that is very powerful the truth will set you free. And so I hope you enjoyed that. And uh, by all means, please now sit back and relax and enjoy this catechism uh, lesson on the creed uh, pertaining to the topic of suffering, death, and resurrection of our Lord. Please enjoy. Peace be to you. In this lesson, we continue the creed. 
which links together the birth of our Lord, his cross, and his resurrection. We consider in this lesson particularly his sufferings and resurrection. And we begin with the agony of our Lord. Here we are dealing with a great mystery. Our blessed Lord suffered mentally and physically. We touch upon first his mental sufferings in the Garden of Gethsemane. The time was immediately after the Last Supper. There is only one recorded time in the life of our blessed Lord when he sang. And that was after the Last Supper when he went out to his death. He then told his apostles that they would all be shaken during this hour. Remember that our Lord always spoke of his crucifixion and his sufferings in terms of hour, his glory in terms of day. Evil has its hour. God has his day. As he entered that garden into which he had often gone to pray, he told his apostles that they would be scandalized in him that night because the shepherd would be struck. And they were scandalized indeed. For a short time after the agony, they fled. But he told them, however, when he went in, I will go before you into Galilee when I have risen from the dead. Such a promise was never made before. That a dead man would keep an appointment with his friends after three days in the tomb. Though the sheep would forsake the shepherd, the shepherd would not forsake the sheep. As Adam lost the heritage of union with God in the garden, so now our blessed Lord ushers in our restoration in a garden. Eden and Gethsemane are two gardens around which revolve the fate of humanity. In Eden, Adam sinned. In Gethsemane, Christ took humanity's sin upon himself. In Eden, Adam hid from God. In Gethsemane, Christ interceded with his father. In Eden, God sought out Adam in his sin of rebellion. In Gethsemane, the new Adam Christ sought out the Father in submission and resignation. In Eden, a sword was drawn to prevent entrance into the Garden of Eden and thus immortalize evil. In Gethsemane, our Lord told Peter to sheathe the sword that he had carried. Now, there are two elements that are bound up together in this agony. Sin-bearing and sinless obedience. He goes afar from his apostles, about as far, the scriptures say, as a man could throw a stone. What a curious way to measure distance. 
And our Lord threw himself upon his face, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this chalice pass me by. Only as thy will is, not as mine is. Notice how the two natures of our Lord are involved here. He and the Father were one. So he did not pray, Our Father, if it be possible, let this chalice pass. But my Father, unbroken was the consciousness of his Father's love. But on the other hand, remember that he's man as well as God. His human nature recoiled from death as a penalty for sin. It was very natural for a human nature to shrink from the punishment which sin deserves. So the prayer to have the cup of passion pass was human. In other words, the no was human. The yes to the divine will was the overcoming of that human reluctance to suffering for the sake of redemption. Our blessed Lord now takes upon himself the sins of the world as if he himself were guilty. This is very difficult for us to understand because we always think of physical suffering as a greater evil than moral. Furthermore, we become so used to sin, we do not realize its horror. The innocent understands sin much better than the sinful. The one thing from which man never learns anything by experience is sinning. A sinner becomes infected with sin. It becomes so much a part of him that he may even think himself virtuous, as the feverish think themselves well at times. It is only the virtuous who stand outside of the current of sin, who can look upon evil as a doctor looks upon disease, and who understand the full horror of evil. It is also impossible for us to realize how God felt the opposition of human wills to the divine will. I wonder what example we could find to illustrate that. Perhaps the closest is when a parent feels the strangeness of the power of an obstinate will of one of his children. That child can resist and spurn persuasion, love, hope, and fear of punishment. What a strong power abides in a body so slight and a mind so childish. This is a faint picture of men when they have sinned willfully. What is sin for the soul but a separate principle of wisdom working out its own ends as if there were no God? Antichrist is nothing but the full, unhindered growth of self-will. That's what our Lord had to face in the garden. The opposition of all human wills to the divine will. 
So in obedience now to the Father's will, our Lord takes upon himself the iniquities of all the world to become a sin-bearer. There never was a sin committed in the world for which he did not suffer. The sin of Adam was there. When as the head of the humanity, he lost for all men the heritage of God's grace. Cain was there, purple in the sheet of his brother's blood. The abominations of Sodom and Gomorrah were there. The forgetfulness of his chosen people who fell down before false gods were there. The coarseness of pagans who had revolted against the natural law. These pagans were there too. All sins were there. Sins committed in the country that made all nature blush. Sins of the young for whom the tender heart of Christ was pierced. Sins of the old who should have passed the age of sinning. Sins committed in the darkness where it was thought the eyes of God could not pierce. Sins committed in the light that made even the wicked shudder. Blasphemy seemed to be on his lips as if he had spoken them. And from the north and the south, the east and the west, the foul miasma of the world's sin rushes upon him like a flood. Samson-like, he reaches up and pulls down the whole guilt of the world upon himself as if he were guilty, paying for the debt in our name so that we might once more have access to the Father. He was, so to speak, mentally preparing himself for the great sacrifice, laying upon his sinless soul the sins of a guilty world. I say every sin was there. Your sin was there. And so was mine. And is it any wonder, then, that they began to pour from his body drops of blood, it fell upon the ground like beads forming a rosary of redemption. Sin is in the blood, and for the remission of sin, blood had to be poured forth. He was guiltless, but he prayed and suffered in our name. Then came Judas. Our Lord had to understand even false brethren. Judas threw his arms around the neck of our blessed Lord and blistered his lips with a kiss. Our Lord is now made a buffoon during the night as he has also tried before two religious judges, Annas and Caiaphas. In all, our blessed Lord was tried before four judges. 
Two of them were religious judges. They belonged to the Jews. Two were civil judges. Pilate and Herod. Pilate was a Roman, a Gentile, and Herod was an Edomite. The judges could not agree on why he should be condemned. Different charges were made in different courts. In the religious court, our blessed Lord was condemned of blasphemy. In the civil court, our blessed Lord is condemned of treason. For the religious judges, he is found to be too religious, too divine, too unworldly. Before the civil judges, he's found to be too political, too human, too worldly. They cannot agree on why he should be condemned. They can only agree that he should be. And simply because he is to be condemned on contradictory charges, one because he's too divine and the other because he's too human, where would there be a fitting punishment except the sign of contradiction, which is the cross. Let us take a brief scene from each of these trials. The trial before the religious judges. Caiaphas was unable to find any reason why he could condemn our Lord. He introduced false witnesses, but the witnesses could not agree among themselves. Caiaphas finally resorted to an oath. He put our blessed Lord under it, and with all of the sternness that he could muster, and annoyed by all the contradictions of the witnesses that he had heard, he said to our blessed Lord, I adjure thee by the living God to tell us whether thou art the Christ, the Son of God. Now when Caiaphas asked that question, if he was the Christ, the Son of God, remember that his mind was not like ours. When you and I hear the word Christ, we go back to his earthly life. Not Caiaphas. Caiaphas was going back to all of the prophecies. He was going back to the book of Genesis. He knew how the Messiah had been foretold. And so the question was, was he the Messiah? Was he the Son of God? Was he clad with divine power? Was he the Word made flesh? Was it true that God with sundry times and in diverse manners, spoke to us through the prophets. In these last days, was speaking through him the Son. And so he asked, Art thou the Son of God? And our Lord answered, I am. With sublime consciousness and majestic dignity, he announced that he was the Messiah and the Son of the living God. And when he said, I am, I'm sure that Caiaphas remembered that when God spoke 
to Moses on Mount Sinai. Those were the words that God used of himself. I am who am. Our Lord now speaks to Caiaphas again and says, Moreover, I tell you this, you will see the Son of Man again when he is seated at the right hand of God's power and comes on the clouds of heaven. Notice our blessed Lord affirmed his divinity, then his humanity, and both under the personal pronoun I. He is telling Caiaphas that someday he will be judged. Caiaphas now finds our blessed Lord guilty. He rends his garments as a token of the fact that he had heard blasphemy because Christ was making himself God. But Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, and the people could not put our blessed Lord to death. That power belonged to the Romans. And so they hustle our blessed Lord as the prisoner off to Pilate. He has several trials before Pilate, and Pilate sends him off to Herod. But it is interesting to note the charge that is brought before Pilate against our blessed Lord. In the trial of any ordinary human being, there is a continuity of charges. Our blessed Lord was found guilty of blasphemy. Now, when the prisoner is brought to a higher court, you would think that he would still be condemned of blasphemy. But he's not. Why not? Well, because if Caiaphas and his friends told Pilate that our blessed Lord had made himself God, Pilate would laugh at them. Pilate was a pagan. He would say, I have my gods. You have yours. I sprinkle incense before mine every morning. They therefore had to find some other charge. Now the charge that they would bring against our blessed Lord would be treason. He would be too political. He would be too human. He would be too early. It must be remembered too that Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin hated the Romans. The Romans had conquered their country. Roman judges were seated in judgment. Roman coinage was in their pockets. Caesar's ensigns were all over the city of Jerusalem and all through the land that was holy. They hated the invader. They hated Rome. Now when they bring our blessed Lord before Pilate and he asks what charges do they bring against the man, they said that they had found him guilty of perverting the nation, refusing to give tribute to Caesar. Imagine. Refusing to give tribute to Caesar. Caesar whom they hated. Pilate knew that they did not love Caesar. But in order to win their release, after many incidents in the trial, they finally said to him, Thou art no friend of Caesar if thou dost release him. The man who pretends to be a king is Caesar's rival. Pilate was afraid of being reported to Rome. What would Tiberius do to him? Would he unseat him? 
But Pilate tried to save our Lord. He had called our Lord innocent seven times. Now he scourges our blessed Lord, brings him out before the people and says, Behold your king! And up against that marble balustrade there came a wave of voices saying, We have no king but Caesar. Then Pilate gave up Jesus into their hands to be crucified. Our Lord is now led to Calvary. Once on those heights, he offers his hands to his executioners, the hands from which the world's graces flow. The first dull knock of the hammer is heard in silence. Mary and John hold their ears. The sound is unendurable. The echo sounded as another stroke. And then the cross is lifted slowly off the ground. Then with a thud that seemed to shake even hell itself, it sank into the pit prepared for it. Our Lord has mounted his pulpit for the last time. He spoke seven words. That is to say seven times. We cannot give you the seven words for want of time. But the first word of our blessed Lord was for all who had crucified and all who had brought him to death. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It is not wisdom that saves. It is ignorance. And then after hanging three hours on the cross, our blessed Lord now prepares to surrender his life. Remember that he had often said, no man takes my life away from me. I lay it down of myself. It is to be noted, therefore, that when our blessed Lord came to the seventh word, the scriptures say that he spoke those words in a loud voice to show that he was the master of his own life. And just as planets only after a long period of time complete their orbits and then come back to their starting point as if to salute him who sent them on their way, so now he was the prodigal son who left the father's house, wasted his life and his blood for our sakes, is preparing to go back home, and he lets fall from his lips the perfect prayer. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. There is a rupture of a heart through a rapture of love, he bows his head and dies. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea come to take him down from the cross. They embalm him in a hundred pounds of spices. And it is interesting what scripture says. In the same quarter where he was crucified, there was a garden. 
the word garden hinted at Eden in the fall of man, as it also suggested through its flowers in the springtime the resurrection from the dead. In that garden was a tomb in which, in the language of Scripture, no man had ever been buried. Born of a virgin womb, he is buried in a virgin tomb. And as Crashaw said, and a Joseph did betroth them both. Nothing seems more repellent than to have a crucifixion in a garden. And yet, there would be compensation, for the garden would have his resurrection. He was born in a stranger's cave, and so he is buried in a stranger's grave, because human birth and human death are equally foreign to him. Dying for others, he's placed in another's grave. His grave was burrowed, borrowed, for he would give it back on Easter as he gave back the beast which he rode on Palm Sunday when he said, The Lord hath need of it. When he rose from the dead, he made many appearances, as we have already said. And one of the appearances of the resurrection, for which we did not give many details, was a week after all of the other apostles had seen our blessed Lord. They had been become convinced, but only after much evidence and after much doubting. And our blessed Lord comes into the upper room and says, Peace be to you. Now Thomas had refused to believe. Thomas, one of the apostles. He said, I will not believe until I have seen the mark of nails on his hands. Until I have put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hands into his side. You will never make me believe. Now our blessed Lord appears. Speaks to Thomas. Let me have thy finger. See? Here are my hands. Let me have thy hand. Put it into my side. Cease thy doubting and believe. And throwing himself on his knees, he said to the risen Savior, Thou art my Lord and my God. Oh, there are some who will never believe even when they see. Thomas thought that he was doing the right thing and demanding the full evidence of sensible proof. But what would become of future generations if the same evidence was to be demanded by them? Suppose you would not believe the resurrection until you could put finger into his hand and hand to his side. The future believers, our Lord implied, must accept the fact of the resurrection from those who have been with him. Our Lord thus pictured the faith of believers after the apostolic age, when there would be none who would have seen it, but their faith would have a foundation because the apostles themselves had seen the risen Christ. How do we know there was a resurrection? Simply because the church was there. The church was there when the apostles. 
They saw the resurrection. Thomas was there, the daughter. Thomas believed. And he believed in the name of all who could not see sensibly, who could accept the testimony of those whom Christ sent out to preach the gospel of the resurrection to all nations. But the story is not over. In the next lesson, we will touch on his ascension to the right hand of the Father. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you once again for joining me for this time of reflection from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. I would ask you to continue to pray for us here at Radio Maria as we continue to ask for God to provide for our needs. And so, in any way possible, be it through prayer or financial support, we appreciate your concern and love for us. Know that we will pray for you, and we ask you to pray for us. And so, until next time, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.